You're listening to the Agony Column News Report, trashotroncom agony. The new book by Sean Carroll is The Big Picture on the Origins of Life, Meaning, and the Universe Itself. Thank you for joining me, Sean. Thanks for having me. Sean, at the center of this book is the idea of poetic naturalism. What is it and how does it help us comprehend the world? Well, naturalism is the idea there is only one world in the largest sense, the natural world, the world that we can learn about by making observations and doing science. And poetic reflects the fact that there are many ways of talking about that world and ways of talking that are useful in the purposes we have in the moment talk about real aspects of the world. If, if talking about tables and chairs is useful for your current purposes, then tables and chairs really are true things that exist. But if you're talking about atoms and molecules, maybe you're talking about uh, neutrons and gluons and a bunch of other stuff that is not where tables and chairs are absolutely not applicable. Exactly. So that's a different story we can tell about the world, which is also a true story of the world. So there's not just one way of talking about the world. It's not as if we need to go to the most fundamental level to find the only true statements we can make about reality. There are many different levels that we can talk about. There's atoms and gluons and forces and quantum fields. There are tables and chairs and oceans and rivers. There are people with purposes and choices and emotions. There are judgments about this is right, this is wrong, and so forth. These are all these different kinds of stories that we can tell. That's what makes the world an interesting place. One of the things that makes the world an interesting place is our ability to measure things. We, Our technology has given us the uh, ability to see things that we could not have even comprehended, let alone seen. And you suggest that the discoveries we've made account for pretty much everything we can see and, and need to know at this moment. Well, everything we need to know about the stuff of our everyday life. Mm-hmm. You know, it depends on what you mean by need to know. Uh-huh. As a working cosmologist, <laughs> I need to know what the dark matter is, and we don't know that, right? I need to know what happened at the Big Bang. But the claim I make in the book is that the laws of physics underlying our everyday lives, the actual atoms and particles that make up you and me and tables and chairs, those we do know, and, and we know them perfectly well. They're not going to change in the future, right? We might get a better understanding of them. We might get a deeper level even than the level of atoms and forces, but the fact that the table in front of you is made of atoms, obeying the laws of physics that we currently know, is still going to be true a thousand or a million years from now. Take us to the deepest level that we now understand, that idea of quantum fields. Yeah, the best language a physicist currently have for talking about reality at the fundamental level is field theory, quantum field theory. So instead of saying the world is made of particles, the world is actually made of fields that live everywhere in space. And you set those fields vibrating. And the quantumness of it all is encapsulated by the fact that when you look very carefully at a vibrating field, it looks like a particle to you. So if you ever pose the question in your physics classes in high school, is light or is electrons a particle or a wave? The answer is they're waves. Waves are what the world is made out of. But when you look closely at the world, we see individual particles. How do we know that there's not something outside of particles, outside of the fields that is our consciousness and that that consciousness can survive death or has existed before we were born? 
Well, we never know anything for sure. This mm-hmm. is one point I make in the book, but we have good evidence against that kind of idea. Basically, if there were truly stuff that sort of obeyed anything like the rules of physics as we currently know them, that would be able to encompass the information in our brains, our memories, our personalities, and so forth, it's either the stuff that we already know, the electrons, the protons, and, and so forth, or it's something that needs to interact with that stuff we know, needs to push it around. A lot of people try to wriggle around this whole mind-body dualism question by positing conscious stuff that has no influence whatsoever on the ordinary matter that is made of us. But the ordinary matter that makes us up, you know, is responsible for things like talking and writing poems and things like that. You know, we use our mouths to talk. And so if this extra stuff has no influence on us, then it's completely besides the point. If it does have an influence on us, we would have noticed it already. How do we accommodate modern physics at its lowest level and modern society, modern ethics, modern morals, and the changes that we're under, seeing undergo right now? I mean, our society is being torn about apart by different religions, different notions of gender, different notions of marriage. Where does modern physics and this idea of poetic naturalism, how does that help us reconcile all these very different things? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I I certainly wouldn't want to say that physics or even naturalism tells us the right answers to these difficult moral dilemmas. However, I would say that if you think you have an answer to a moral question, it better be compatible with the laws of physics. It better not rely on violating the laws of physics. And that might sound like a very easy uh, standard to meet. But in fact, you know, the laws of physics, if you really take them seriously, have something to say about what life is, for example, what uh, a human being is, what male versus female really means. These are stories that we tell about the underlying physical stuff. They are not built into the fabric of reality, as, as you might have thought. And that changes our perspective a little bit on sort of how we should think about what the world should be, not just what it is. And I, you used the word story, and I think that that's really the key to understanding this book, is that this book is about how humans, as a narrative species, look at everything and see it as a story. And what you suggest is that there are different levels of granularity and that each level of granularity has an appropriate set of stories so that it's useful for us if we're in the public sphere talking about how people get along. It's useful for us to uh, suggest that marriage is something that has a definition and that sexuality has a definition. If you're talking about atoms, we wanted to talk about something else. Atoms are not going to be really helpful in a discussion about marriage. But that's the, right. the ideas of marriage better not violate what's happening about mar- uh, in the, at the atomic level. Exactly. So I think that, for example, one of the conundrums that people talk themselves into concerns free will and mm-hmm. the ability of human beings to make choices. So the the problem would go something like this. You walk up to your closet in the morning. You ask yourself, do I want to wear the red shirt or the blue shirt today? And then you say, oh, who cares? I will just let my atoms obey the laws of physics and see what happens. (laughs) That is clearly wrong, and nobody acts that way. And the reason why it's wrong is because you started your sentence using one vocabulary, right? Telling one story, I'm a human being, I'm making a choice. Then suddenly you switched languages and started talking about the atoms obeying the laws of physics. 
you can tell either one of those stories. They're perfectly good. If you knew what all the atoms in the room and in the universe were doing, and you were an infinitely good calculator of what's going to happen next, you could figure out what chart you're going to go and pick up. But you're not, right? <laughs> you don't have that information. You're not a perfectly good calculator. You are a very finite human being with limited information. And at the level of the story of human beings, we discuss them and talk about them as people that make choices. And that's not a mistake. It's a different vocabulary than we use at the level of atoms and, and momenta and so forth. But it's a vocabulary that is the right one to describe human agents moving through the world. Sean Carroll's new book is The Big Picture. Thank you for joining me, Sean. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report, trashotron.com slash agony.